Welcome, my paranormal-loving friend, to the Demon Brigade. This is Renegade Files, episode 32, Halloween, Society's Paranormal Fix. As a society, and probably more to the point as a human species, we evolved from the natural world. This natural world has seasons and cycles and processes that ebb and flow and nourish and challenge. The further away from nature that we, as a society, stray, the more we both collectively and individually suffer from anxieties, hardships, and confusion. On this episode of Renegade Files, we go deep into the ideas and the more esoteric reasons behind Halloween and why we as a culture keep these traditions in our lives year after year. We will explore some of the oppressed knowledge of the occult, try to figure out the differences between scary and creepy to understand why it matters, and infiltrate the dark realms of secret societies created by elites to sequester knowledge for themselves while persecuting the free use of it. So don your most ghoulish costume, prepare your offerings for the spirits, grab your flaming torch and protective charms, and come trick-or-treating with your old friend Lex Gordon as we leave the safety of the Jungle Villa outpost to carry our freak flag deep into the uncharted tropics. This is a dark mission indeed, into Halloween, Society's Paranormal Fix. Halloween. Halloween. Paranormal, paranormal Fix. Halloween. Halloween. Paranormal Fix. Halloween. As far as holidays go, particularly in the West, Halloween is extremely unique. It is a time when we as a society can indulge our curiosity and speculation into the paranormal world. It's the end of our calendar year, and this is traditionally the last harvest before winter. The leaves fall. All of this becomes symbolic for the end of life or lives, symbolic of death, decay, and the afterlife. All of that is associated with Halloween. The witch, one of the most persistent symbols of Halloween, one of the most popular costumes year after year, a perennial character in movies, decorations, old stories, toys, all of this unites witches with Halloween because the witches understand the cycles of nature, the cycles of death, the process of decay, and the macabre motifs. The witch's calendar is a circle. The Wiccans call it the wheel of the year. Soen, that's the old Celtic word, S-A-M-H-I-N, or Halloween, is both the end of that year and the beginning of the next. These are very real, very grounded, and very natural ideas. So the Wiccan wheel of the year, or the witch's calendar, is based on the cycles of the sun and the seasons of the earth when you really consider it and you begin to think of the passage of time in these cyclical seasonal ways 
it puts you in harmony with nature, the process of the earth and the cosmos. It makes you understand that death for the leaf is just the nourishment for the greater tree itself and that that process is never ending. In a strange way, it removes the anxiety and fear of our one apparent life that we cling to so desperately. And that's a normal, natural, healthy thing. But to live in fear of losing it with every step you take and every breath you make or whatever they say is, is, is a, a terrible situation. And it only becomes when we fully separate our one individual self from the greater connection of the natural world. And the further away we get from the natural world as a society, the more acute that anxiety becomes. A person or a culture in harmony with those natural forces becomes independent, powerful, and wise. Those are the attributes that are being oppressed when the patriarchal, monotheistic religions persecute and suppress the pagan nature religions like witchcraft. So, in that sense, the idea of the wicked witch is just a psyop. The specter of the malicious black magic crone was created by aligning the natural wise woman with the devil, which was a strictly Christian idea then and now. Pagan witches tuned to the cycles of nature and the powers they saw at work in the sun, the moon, the gardens, and the woods. And the Christian Satan was not among those. To this day, we associate witches, witchcraft, pagan ideas, and even the very word pagan with the devil only because of centuries of propaganda. Systematic, orchestrated, and deliberate. This was generated by the ruling elite as a way to marginalize free thinking, personal connections to the earth, and magic, which is nothing more than the application of those older hermetic ideas of as above, so below, thoughts create things, you get what you expect, and every action has a reaction or you reap what you sow. These ancient ideas constantly become the newest discoveries of science, time and time again. These principles and ideas work miraculously for the individual, but they do not work for the ruling elite. That's why the ruling elite vilifies them and marginalizes them, even as they form secret societies to learn them. So one of the most powerful ideas in that little collection of ideas is that idea of you reap what you sow, cause and effect. This is, as the Merovingian said in the Matrix movies, the only one true law, cause and effect. You reap what you sow. And if you really look at modern culture, what we are seeing is the degradation of that idea or the attempted degradation of that idea. In other words, it's the sowing which is being removed from the reaping. So there, in other words, 
a stripping away of consequence or an attempt to strip away consequence. So no one is accountable for their actions. A shoplifter is let to walk out of the store. A kid who gets in trouble at school doesn't get punished. Someone who doesn't perform their job can't be fired. And on and on and on and on. So what we quickly see is that much of, if not all, of the unrest in our society can be attributed to turning away from those natural ideas, turning away from those old earth-based systems that connected us to nature, connected us to each other, and told us that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. In other words, for every gain, there is a cost. What you reap is what you sow. And this is not some new revolutionary idea. This is an old observation of the way things actually work. This is not a theory. This is probably one of the only things that has been proven to us time and time and time again. And when we try to upend that with our intellect, we run into walls at every turn. You cannot plant a carrot seed and expect that plant to grow up and grow an apple. That's what it means when they say you reap what you sow. What you plant is what you get. And it works across all manner of society. It works across all manner of endeavor. It works in all instances where we have to interact with the physical world. Now, when we see these situations such as no one is allowed to fail in school, you're allowed to take a test two, three, four times, use the book, whatever, till you finally pass it. What that's doing is failing to teach people that what you reap is what you sow, but the students involved in that situation are never able to escape the universal law that what you reap is what you sow, and so therefore they sow an inferior education, and then what they reap is they can't perform when they get out of school. So that's just one example, and it's the example of the old traditions of what could be considered the pagan rules or the pagan observations or the natural ideas that have proven to be true perennially that the stripping away of that knowledge creates chaos. But as a whole, strictly speaking, this episode isn't a sociology class. It is looking into this, uh, this idea that society needs the paranormal. And Halloween provides that fix. So let's look into Halloween beyond those little two or three sound bites that we always get about why they carve pumpkins and why kids dress up and see if we can get a little bit more of a handle on the importance of Halloween and the reasons that we, as a culture, keep it around. When we start to look into Halloween, what we find quickly is that the traditions surrounding the holiday have been around for over 2,000 years. The modern customs draw from Celtic roots. Essentially, these older Celtic pagan ideas were transferred into the modern culture that we have. And we know that the history of those classic traditions like jack-o'-lanterns and trick-or-treating find their correlate back in the pagan traditions of the very earliest days of society. Trick-or-treating, it's believed, comes from various Halloween traditions that were combined 
Some of the customs which have affected American trick-or-treating include what's called souling, murmuring, and guising. It's a common belief that during Halloween, and this is an old pagan idea, that the veil between the realm of the living and the spirit realm is at its thinnest. And so therefore, the spirits can move freely into the physical world and people in the physical world can interact more easily with those beings in the spirit world. The more dramatic horror movie version of that is the dead can walk the earth kind of thing, right? So holding to this pagan belief, families would place offerings of fruit or food or bread outside their doors to appease the spirits as they wandered, to essentially keep them out of their homes, and to sort of reward and say thank you to any of their ancestors that might be stopping by, you know, for the night. What happened is these were very poor times, so the poor would go around and steal the food, and people would try to run them off. And then kids would go around to get the treats, like the apples or the little cakes that might have been left out. And since the belief was that the spirits were roaming the earth, and that's why the food was put there in the first place, the children started to dress up to imitate the spirits so that they could sneak up dressed as a ghost and get the little cupcakes or whatever had been left out there for the spirits. This sort of evolved into what they called going souling because one of the things that they would bake and put on the doorstep would be soul cakes. They were just called that because they were given to the spirits. So when the Christian church began to try to assert its power, they suggested that instead of leaving soul cakes, you would say prayers to dead relatives. So in medieval Europe, the emerging church encouraged members to participate in souling which would be praying for the souls instead of physically leaving soul cakes out for the spirits of the dead. It was a way to sort of move away from that older pagan tradition in a very physical way and move it into the spirit world, which was the providence of the church. So then we have the tradition of mummering, and I may have said murmuring earlier, but mummering is when people would dress up and go door to door and offer to do things in exchange for these treats. So they would dance or they would sing. The tradition of Christmas caroling is very similar to this. And it's unique as far as Halloween goes because mummering or mummers doesn't necessarily or didn't necessarily occur only on Halloween. They would do it at other times, you know, even Easter. The third sort of tradition that we have is called guising. And it's also related to murmuring, except it's got a few more tricks in the mix. Scottish geysers were usually kids, and they would dress up in disguises and go door to door and do tricks in exchange for prizes or food. And that's where trick-or-treating comes from. They would go to affluent neighborhoods and tell jokes and dance and do little magic tricks and try to get treats for it. So it seems like the combination of those three traditions evolved into what we know or what we knew as trick-or-treating. The tradition of wearing costumes on Halloween is one of the oldest. It goes back 2,000 years to the festival of Sowen that was performed by the Celtic pagans. The idea was trying to blend in with all of the other dead spirits walking around. We have this common costume of the era being like an animal head or skull worn over your head, animal skins on your body. This sounds weird to us in the modern day, but these were harsher times and they were already slaughtering animals for their fur. 
They had skulls more accessible than we might. So these were like early masks, and of course they made masks as well. The costume as a disguise seemed like a good idea because people continued to fear ghosts and ghouls and other spirits, especially on Halloween night. We also have this more fairy realm tradition of the wild hunt. And the idea of the wild hunt was that fairies would come down out of the hills, they would move into the cities, and they would cause havoc and they would torture you, and they would do all kinds of nefarious deeds, and that one way that you could confuse them was to wear your clothes inside out or backwards, and that would always throw them off, or wear like a steel amulet. So this idea of disguising yourself or trying to trick the fairies on the night of the wild hunt, combined with the ideas that the veil between the spirit world and the real world is at its thinnest on Halloween or so in, those things sort of combined over centuries to create the modern version of dressing up on Halloween. So it's kind of cool. It's interesting how those ideas persist. It was in America in the 1950s that this trick-or-treating sort of grew to its, um, maybe its golden age. Kids started to dress up. That was back in the day when you and your buddies were allowed to go from house to house in the neighborhood. They would start trick-or-treating when the lights went on, and when the porch lights were turned off, they knew the people were out of candy or it was time to go home. And it was more of a social thing among kids. It was a way for the parents to get the kids out of the house for a little bit. The dad could put his feet up and have a drink. The mom could talk about her day and whatever it was that they did in the 1950s for the 30 or 45 minutes when the kids weren't in the house. A lot of those houses would have had glowing jack-o'-lanterns carved into pumpkins, and that would let the kids know that those people were cool and had candy. If there was a house that didn't have a porch light on from the get-go, that was someone who either wasn't there or didn't have any candy for you. And a lot of us back then, I wasn't alive in the 50s, but I was around during the age of what is called free-range trick-or-treating. Sometimes you would go to a house with a very well-meaning person who had just forgotten to buy candy or maybe they didn't have the resources to spend on a bunch of candy for kids. So they would give you whatever they had around. A lot of times they would give you some coins, like some pennies or whatever. Or they would give you something healthy like an apple that they had and you're always bummed out when you're a kid like, oh darn it, an apple, thanks a lot. Those would have been like the social, early social lessons of Halloween that not every house has the good stuff sort of thing. But you're still polite to the lady and you say thank you and you just grumble about it with your friends later. The jack-o'-lanterns that they would have on the porches or that we still do, this also started in Soen back in Ireland. Celtic druids and those who were celebrating the end of the year, final harvest, they would carve turnips and place coals inside and they did this for a few reasons. First of all, the belief was the glowing pumpkin would simultaneously attract your own relatives in spirit form to the house for a little bit of fellowship, and at the same time it would confuse or scare away any malevolent spirits. And I, you know, I always wondered, and I'm not sure how that exactly works, how one thing could do two jobs, but I guess it was a lot of wishful thinking. So another thing that we see is those early Celtic pagans would take to the streets, they would roam the countryside, they would chant, they would basically do sort of a, a ritual that was like a moving, walking meditation. 
and it could be argued that that has evolved into our modern day Halloween parades where everyone dresses up and maybe in the case of Fantasy Fest in Key West, they undress a little bit more than they dress. But all of those uh, ideas stem back to this sort of walking meditation of everyone moving through the town at once. And if you've ever been a part of a parade, it is kind of an interesting thing. It's sort of a dynamic that happens. I don't know if necessarily uh, the Halloween parade directly comes from these Celtic sort of walking meditations. Probably more so that Halloween parades just evolved from our modern sort of practice of having a parade in general. And we tend to have them on holidays, and so Halloween is as good as any. So there's a million reasons everyone loves a parade, as they say. As we move into the more modern day, there, there was a sort of scare uh, maybe in the 70s and 80s about people putting um, horrible things in candy and, and kids getting injured or getting sick or whatever. I think for the most part, that's an urban legend. I don't know if there's ever really been a case, and probably on the internet you could find one nowadays. But by and large, that was just sort of a, an urban legend and a modern hysteria. It's interesting, and it would be it would be interesting to really drill down and see what the origins of that were, if you could if you could find it. I expect that it's just sort of another way to kind of reel in this socialization. As we see in the darker version of societal control, we see it over and over again. We see an evolution toward a stay-at-home kind of directive. As a result, Halloween has, I would say, in the last two decades, permeated into a bunch of different versions of that. They have a little thing now that's called trunk or treat, and so everyone in the neighborhood goes down to the park and they park their cars and they open their trunks, and mostly it's like people that know each other or, and do it. It's interesting because it's not that different than going from house to house. Why is all of a sudden candy given to you out of the back of a car safer than giving to you out of, out of a front door? I don't really know. I remember I went to a car show last year and it was right around Halloween and it was really cool and all the cars sort of either were decorated for Halloween or had skeletons in the driver's seat and that kind of thing. And all of those people had their trunks open and they had candy in there and little dolls and all kinds of Halloween paraphernalia. And most of the people at the car show were dressed up, especially the kids, and everyone sort of went around to the cars in the car show and got candy. It was, it was cool, it was interesting. It's kind of a mashup of car show and Halloween trick-or-treating event. Anyway, there's other things that we do nowadays. We have ghost tours. A lot of the big cities have ghost tours. You know, a lot of times they'll be walking or they'll be on a little train or what have you. A scripted sort of presentation in some of the cases better than others. A lot of places have haunted pub crawls, which introduces another kind of spirit into the equation, alcohol. And that can be fun if you're walking and you, and you have a safe way home and all that, you go around. And if you have an interesting host and someone who knows the history and, and knows a lot of stories, it can be really, really fun to do those sort of things. I know St. Augustine has some good ones, and that's in my neck of the woods, and, you know, it'd be really cool to go there. I have plans to do an episode from St. Augustine. We'll put that into one of our ghost file episodes. And another relatively modern development as far as Halloween goes is this idea of the haunted house. For the most part, haunted houses are believed to have started around the 19th century in London, 
There was Marie Tussaud's wax figure museum, which was called the Chamber of Horrors. Later, we have a first haunted attraction on record, which was the Edwardian Fair Ghost House in the United Kingdom. Thespians would be in there, and they would scare. It was no different than our modern haunted house, probably a little more classy, I would guess. The modern version of the haunted house got a few boosts. It was sometime in the 1950s when the idea of trick-or-treating started leaning heavily to the trick side. You have older kids getting out there. You have the event of the automobile so that some teenagers actually have cars so they can travel to the next town where they can engage in a little more mischief and then maybe drive home and not get in as much trouble as they would if they did it across the street in their own neighborhood. Slowly but surely, Halloween sort of became this night where young people, for the most part, young adults and teenagers, would basically just raise hell. I'm not sure how much damage was done in the beginning. Started out as, you know, egging a house or toilet papering a car or maybe small acts of vandalism, but it sort of escalated. I remember reading an article that said in Detroit it got particularly bad arson and fires and they would do all kinds of crazy stuff vandalize graveyards and light churches on fire and you know all all manner of calamity the haunted house was an initiative in the beginning to give the unruly teenagers something to do on halloween night they turned it into a fundraiser and actually it worked really well The article that I read charted the uprise of haunted houses on Halloween and leading up to Halloween and overlaid a graph of destructive vandalism on Halloween. And there's absolutely an inverse relationship. As haunted houses became more prevalent and better and more popular and became seen as something to do on Halloween night, there was a direct decline in what we would call damaging shenanigans on Halloween. So a a decline in fires and vandalism and true acts of debauchery on Halloween. That's a really good thing. And it's a good example of a situation where society on its own came up with a solution and the solution for the most part worked. Another thing that gave the haunted houses a boost was Disneyland and their opening of the Haunted Mansion in 1969. This was a huge success. Walt Disney and his Haunted Mansion not only brought the creepy and the macabre and this sort of paranormal aspect to Disney World, or at least brought it out in the open, but the Haunted Mansion benefited from the advertising apparatus of Walt Disney's corporation, so Disney. You're talking about the 19, the late 1960s, the early 70s. This was really taking off. The Haunted Mansion was a big deal at Halloween. People would line up to go to Disney World on Halloween just to go through the Haunted Mansion attraction. At the same time, you have the Haunted Mansion attraction being advertised at the beginning of Disney films, being used in their promotional materials. It really swept the nation in a serious way. Nowadays, haunted houses are big businesses and people can spend a lot of money for their community and raise a lot of money for their community in the process of building these sort of charity haunted houses that pop up every year. Another tradition that I've read about, and it's not something that I've ever seen, maybe you could drop us a comment on the Instagram page if you've ever done this or know about it, but it's called pumpkin chunking, or pumpkin chunking, or throwing pumpkins apparently. People try to see how far they can throw a pumpkin. 
I don't really know if this <laughs> has taken off as much as the article I read seemed to suggest. It, it, to me, it, it kind of seems a little wasteful <laughs> to just, I don't, I don't know. It just, it seems, seems silly. Who's going to clean all that up? And, and what's, there's a lot of things you could throw. I guess throwing a pumpkin is as fun as anything. Another thing that we've sort of brought into the modern day from the older tradition is a hayride where in the rural areas of actual farms, at this time, the farmers would be harvesting hay. So it's at the end of the year. It's winter hasn't fully set in. The hay is full and tall and ripe. And so the farmers would bale the hay in the fields. They would have it on the trailers and the rural kids would delight in jumping up on the bales of hay as the farmer would take in the beginning his horse-drawn wagon and cart them around, eventually tractors and whatever other farm implements that they would use to pull hay. And so you get the modern hayride and, and that sort of also evolved in conjunction with the haunted house. So like a really good hayride will take you through some spooky trails through the woods or whatever. Along the way, you'll have ghosts and specters and people that are there to jump out and scare the kids on the hayride. And th those can be really, really good because you're almost on this tram. You're not really worried about them getting up there and getting you, but it's just great fun. And, and you know, I think that that's something that, that if you've never done it, if you could find a good one, those are really cool. It, it's just a great tradition. It's also neat because it's something that's outside. You're in the natural world for the most part. You can smell the smoke of a nearby fireplace, cool air on your skin, the whole thing. You can scream as loud as you want. Being outside, going on a really cool hayride, it's the best. We went over some of those esoteric connections of Halloween in the beginning of the episode. I just want to dive into that a little bit more and be sure to stay tuned to the very end because we're going to have a little Halloween trivia quiz. And that's going to be really fun. So 10 questions, all Halloween trivia, coming up. Returning back to this theme that we sort of touched on in the beginning of the episode, we have Halloween being associated with witches. We wouldn't have witches without witchcraft. And if you go back far enough, you find that essentially what could be called the ruling elite. They basically aligned the witches and their witchcraft and all of their shenanigans with the Christian devil, which is... Any Wiccan or any pagan witch will tell you that there is no devil or Satan in their religion. That whole thing has been convoluted and twisted by the powers that be to cast those natural ideas into the fringe. Why? Because they're powerful and they're productive. The ruling elite doesn't want people thinking for themselves, accomplishing their goals on their own through the power of positive thinking and the law of attraction, and having a complete understanding of cause and effect and action and reaction. And that's a fascinating way to look at this. You gotta kind of take a step back sometimes and realize that things aren't always what they seem. And it's interesting that Halloween persists in spite of it. And that brings up another point, which maybe isn't so conspiracy focused, but that is society has a need for the paranormal. We have a desire to go into the unknown, to, to peek around the crypt corner, so to speak. We wonder what happens in the afterlife, and Halloween is a time for us to indulge our theories about it. It's a time when we can take a trip into the darker realms, so to speak. Those are areas of our society that are very valuable. If nothing else, it's a contrast to the good. It's not necessarily always a devilish recruitment that we're talking about, 
It's a supernatural that begs to be explored. Earlier, I had said that we're going to analyze this idea, what's the difference between scary and creepy, okay? These are words that we throw around all the time, scary, creepy. And because we intuitively imagine that we know exactly what they mean, we never really think about the definition. And especially with the terms scary and creepy, they kind of are used interchangeably. Now, this is outside of the realm of the modern version of like a creepy guy or someone who's potential pervert or something. That's, that's become a slang term that gets thrown around. But when we're talking about being frightened and we're, we're talking about something that causes you to be scared, the idea of the difference between scary and creepy becomes very subtle but important. Scary is something that induces fear. The definition is causing fright or alarm, something that creates a sudden panic or instigates you to flight. Many things can be scary. A lion popping out of the tree line when you're in a field and you realize he's headed toward you, that's scary, right? Someone coming at you with a knife in an alley. That's scary. Watching a movie where there's creepy music playing in the background and the person standing next to a window suddenly gets grabbed around the neck when someone reaches through the window. That's scary. That's called a jump scare. Those kind of things are more acute. So scary is like the acute, obvious, it's right there, it's on, it's real, we're scared, that kind of thing. So an evidence of inducing a flight. It's more of an instant, direct, drastic thing, I would say. Scary. Creepy, on the other hand, is more the build-up to the scare, almost, in a certain way. I'm going to read to you. This is a definition from Francis T. McAndrew and Sarah S. Koenigke from Knox College and their article called On the Nature of Creepiness. Their definition is, quote, Creepiness is anxiety aroused by the ambiguity of whether there is something to fear or not, and or by the ambiguity of the precise nature of the threat. That's a much more subtle thing than just being scared. Creepiness, in other words, is that feeling aroused by not knowing if something is really dangerous or not, or not having a full grasp of the threat, right? So an example would be, particularly in the movies, a little kid in a nightgown standing with his arms by his side and staring at you silently. That's a creepy image because you're not sure if there's really any reason to fear this situation or not. It's unclear what the precise nature of the threat is. Why is the kid staring at me like that? A grown person would think, I'll kick that kid's butt if he tries anything. But then again, the, the nature of the paranormal creeps in and it becomes unsettling. The reason that I wanted to talk about this difference between scary and creepy is I personally think this creepy nature, the idea of something being creepy, is part of why Halloween persists because it allows our imagination to roam. When you have these movies that are just out and out slasher, scare, jump scare, those elicit a certain type of adrenaline and that's the reason that people like them. But the more subtle ground of creepiness That's where we enter into these psychological thrillers, these sort of more cerebral ideas of something unsettling, 
something unusual, something that we don't quite understand the nature of it, and that compels us to think a little bit and to develop theories and hypotheses. And it's that mental exercise which causes something that's creepy to be a little more of a thoughtful application of the notion of something that's scary. And I think it's our need to constantly explore and our need to understand the paranormal, which drives us. And the notion of something that's creepy is the manifestation of those desires. And I think that's, by and large, a big reason for why our fascination with Halloween persists and our fascination with the paranormal persists. In a large part, Halloween is far different than all of the other holidays. Let's think about how and why, just as we sort of come to the end here, before we do our cool Halloween trivia quiz. Halloween is unique because it doesn't have the expectations of Thanksgiving. To have a Halloween party, you don't need to have your best china, and the turkey doesn't have to be perfect, and the sides don't have to be lined up in a perfect buffet, and you don't have to worry about keeping Uncle Charlie sober enough to get through dessert. (laughs) So there's a lot of sort of expectation that comes with a traditional Thanksgiving. It's a gathering of the family. You may or may not like all of them in the same way, but you're obligated to have them at this event. Thanksgiving comes with its own kind of expectation. At the same time, a ratcheting up of that expectation into what could almost be called pressure would be the modern version of Christmas. Whether you're strictly a Christian or not, the celebration of that winter holiday where we exchange gifts comes with a certain amount of pressure. You gotta get the right gift. What do I buy this person who doesn't need anything? I don't want to offend them and get a size too large. I I don't know. There's a hundred thousand reasons why Christmas and the tradition of gift giving that it implies becomes a really high pressure thing. You hear people saying all the time, can't wait for Christmas to be over. And, you know, in the modern world now, we have this really strange phenomenon. Just let's bring it up. Let's just let's put it on the table because we're all thinking about it. They have Christmas stuff in the stores and it's not even Halloween yet. And I'm not saying like they have a few things or they're getting ready. In my local Walmart, they're pushing the Halloween stuff to the end caps in order to make room for the Christmas decorations. And I live, as you know, deep down in the uncharted tropics. I'm in the jungle and it is never cool. Our our cold season is 60 degrees. So it's still 80, pushing 90 degrees right now here in the middle of October, getting toward the end. It's hot. I'm not thinking about Christmas, and it almost makes me sick (laughs) to see Christmas trees and Christmas decorations in the store before we even get to Halloween. I'm not the first person to make this observation, but give us a break. Let us have Halloween. Let us have Thanksgiving, and then we'll get to Christmas and make it the cool, fun thing that it should be, not the retail full-court press that it's become. So Halloween, (laughs) to get back on track, is sort of exempt from the expectations of Thanksgiving, and it also doesn't carry with it the pressure of Christmas. It's fun. We can dress up, we can be silly, we can eat candy that we don't normally eat. It's a time of really letting go, and I think part of that is because it is our society's need for the deep, the creepy, the dark, and Halloween is our ability, it's our time of the year, to explore that. 
it is our paranormal fix. So that's the theme for this episode. And I hope that you've gotten something out of this. And I hope that you like my freewheeling versions that I'm kind of trying to do a little bit more of. It's more fun for me, and I hope it's as fun for you. We're still going to go deep into the hardcore academic world of deep conspiracy research, serious investigation into the paranormal, digging, digging down into the unsolved mysteries that are all around us. There is no end to topics for the renegade vials. We are just getting started. At the end of the year here, I'm taking a little more of a freewheeling approach. I hope that you like it. And don't worry, we still have deep research. We still have stuff to get into. And we're never going to get away from that core of the Renegade Files, which I know you love. And I do too. I love doing that. But sometimes it's good to just breathe a little bit and stretch and get into something fun. And Halloween and society's paranormal fix, our fascination with the dark, the macabre, and the ways that this sort of pagan ideas of connecting to nature and making your own way comes into conflict with the ruling elite and the fact that they have persistently and for decades marginalized those ideas is a very interesting take on Halloween. I hope you got at least a little bit out of that like I did. Let's move on right here to our super spooky Halloween trivia quiz. Here we go. 10 questions all about at least the general subject of Halloween. Get your pen and paper ready or get your note app on your phone ready. Don't use Google and don't cheat because no one likes a cheater. Use the old brain and try to really come up with these answers on your own. So here we go. Question number one. A native of England, Gerald Gardner is considered the founder of what modern witchcraft religion? That's question number one. A native of England, Gerald Gardner is considered the founder of what modern witchcraft religion? Question number two is multiple choice. In the early 1800s, a Tennessee family was haunted for years by a phantom witch named Kate. What nickname does this witchy haunting go by? Is it A, the Blair Witch? B, the Bell Witch? C, Whiskey Witch? Or D, the Old Sugar Spook? Question number three. Reported to have held the Russian royal family of the early 1900s in a destructive spell, name this sorcerer who was also known as the Mad Monk. Question number four. The Mars Candy Company lost a lawsuit when they tried to trademark a descriptive term for their small candy bars originally created expressly for trick-or-treaters. What is that descriptive term? Question number five. What is the name for a legendary specter who robs graves and feasts on corpses? So what do we call a legendary specter who robs graves and feasts on corpses? Question number six. According to an October 14, 2022 Newswire article called the making of a Halloween tradition, what American Halloween tradition gained popularity as a way to reduce Halloween vandalism and mischief by giving teenagers something to do on Halloween night? If you paid attention, you may already know the answer to that. Question number seven, also multiple choice. What is the name of the band who plays at the Yule Ball in Hogwarts 
in Goblet of Fire? Is it A, the Dead Kennedys, B, Anthrax, C, Heavy Metal Alchemy, or D, the Weird Sisters? So, of those multiple choices, which one is the band who plays at the Yule Ball at Hogwarts in Goblet of Fire? Question number eight, true or false? The fear of fear is called phobophobia. True or false? Question number nine. How many witches appear in Shakespeare's Macbeth? And question number ten. One of my heroes, Art Bell, the host of the paranormal radio show Coast to Coast AM, did an annual Halloween episode. What was the name of the annual Coast to Coast AM Halloween episode? Okay, cool. Write down your answers and uh, skip back if you want to hear the questions again. And to find the answers to our Halloween trivia contest, I will put a link in the show notes and you can get the answers on a free post on our Patreon page. Haha, see, that's my trick. I tricked you. So I'm going to take you to Patreon where you can look at these answers for free in the free Dark Intel Files Patreon post for this episode. While you're there, you can get a load of what's going on. You can see what Patreon's about. Don't be scared. It's really fun there. So check it out. I hope to see you in there. You can look at some other free posts while you're there, get an idea for what Patreon's all about. And deep down, what it's about is helping this show stay free and ad-free. And so you can see the trivia answers there for free. You can see some other free posts. And if you have the means, it would really be a huge help to me if you like the show, that you could join Patreon and for a really small amount, help the show survive, help me thrive, and help me bring you more shows like this. I also want to say a really special thank you to everyone who is already a member of the Renegade Files Agency on Patreon you make the show possible and it's a big deal to me and I really do appreciate it. So thank you again. That's all I got for you. That's the end of our Halloween Society Paranormal Fix episode. Until our next excursion into the weird and the creepy. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, pagan child. <laughs>